Sport continuously provides its audience with powerfully emotional, healing, and influential moments. And nearly always, these moments are remembered alongside the calls from the broadcasters lucky enough to be behind the microphone the minute the amazing happens. But what makes them unforgettable stretches far beyond the 30-second clip in which it's captured. This is Golden Tones, a podcast. Episode number 9 is a special one. Two weeks ago, in episode number seven, we discussed Brian Wheeler's call of Damian Lillard's series-winning three-pointer in the 2014 NBA playoffs. In this episode, we'll pick the brain of Mr. Brian Wheeler himself. Before that, though, let's listen back to the call. Roll the tape. The Blazers have one three-pointer in the quarter. That was by Batum. But Nick's going to inbound. I don't know if there's enough time for him to get it back. This time they put Jones on Batum, and Howard is defending Aldridge. So in case the Blazers go for a two to their best player, Howard is defending him. Batum throws to Lillard. A three for the game. You've got to pinch me. I must be dreaming. I'll pinch you. <laughs> in an absolutely incredible first round playoff series that ends in the most dramatic way possible. Damian Lillard takes an inbounds pass from Nikola Batum and nails a three-pointer. There was absolutely no doubt. Chandler Parsons ran at him late, but far too late. And Lillard connects as the horn sounds and the Blazers walk off the court winners 99-98. And for the first time in 14 years, the Blazers have won a playoff series and they couldn't have done it in a more thrilling fashion. Again, that was Brian Wheeler and Antonio Harvey back in 2014. And now I have the pleasure of chatting with Mr. Brian Wheeler about this call. Brian, I hope you're well, and uh, thanks for taking out some time. I appreciate it. Mark, my pleasure. Anytime uh, I can relive uh, that shot, it's always, uh, it's always a fun time. Let's rewind back to that moment, 2014. After a couple of down years, the Blazers find themselves back in the playoffs you had been the radio voice of the Blazers for a while before this season, including a number of postseason appearances. But this series specifically, leading into Game 6, what was it like with all those overtime games, winning both the games, uh, first two games on the road? Just what was that series like back in 2014? Yeah, you know, uh, going back, my, my first two seasons in 98-99, uh, the Blazers made the conference finals both years. You start to think that uh, that's going to be uh, uh, pretty much routine and it's going to always be the case. And then you find out that uh, they uh, they not only uh, don't win a playoff series until that particular one against Houston, but uh, there were some years in there where they didn't even make the playoffs. So you, you tend to, uh, to find getting to the postseason a little bit more precious than maybe it was uh, early on when, uh, when in my tenure. And so in that particular situation for the Blazers to not have home court advantage, they weren't the favorites, obviously, against Houston. But to win those first two games, the Marcus Aldridge was, uh, was absolutely brilliant in both games. Uh, and to come home, having not only stolen home court advantage, but to be in a position where you could wrap up the series if you won both games at home, uh, they were in a great spot. Uh, then they lose a tough game three in overtime and then win a game four in overtime. Now they're in a great position. They lose game five, but now we know going back home that the Blazers are in a position where they have the lead in the series, but they definitely don't want to lose game six because the last thing you want to have to do 
is getting out of get on a plane the next day and go to Houston for a game seven, which you obviously would not be favored to win under those circumstances. So when Chandler Parsons had hit his uh, layup uh, with uh, a few seconds remaining, uh, well, 0.9 remaining, um, and gave Houston the lead, it was a really deflating situation. I mean, we didn't take a commercial. We used up all our commercials. So I'm sitting there thinking uh, that this really looks like uh, for all the world that we're going to be on a plane to Houston the next day. And so I think, uh, you know, a dramatic shot to win a game, to win a series was one thing, but I think the relief also that was thrown into the mix of not having to go to Houston the next day uh, was, I think, part of the elation of, of what happened uh, moments later when Damian hit his shot. So um, it was uh, it was certainly uh, unexpected. Obviously, Damian had been a clutch player and had shown the ability to, to be uh, uh, mature beyond his years uh, well before that, but had not been in a position to win a playoff series, uh, clearly, and uh, LaMarcus had been the star of the series. But, you know, you kind of see the way the play was setting up with uh, Dwight Howard kind of going over to guard LaMarcus that uh, if, if he was going to be the guy to take the shot, that he was going to have to do so with, uh, with the Rockets' best uh, post defender on him. And so uh, the way the play set up, uh, obviously it was not uh, necessarily the first option, but uh, the Blazers kind of improvised and, and were able to find Damian. And, and the only thing I didn't, I didn't like about my call, uh, and we said it as we analyzed it as time went on, but I wish that someplace, maybe at least in a follow-up, that I would have been able to mention, because you didn't get a feel that Damian went from one side of the court to the other. And that's the only thing I, I, I regretted that I didn't say. Obviously, I saw it happen, and I wish I had uh, given uh, the listeners a little bit more of a feel for that, because you couldn't necessarily tell that Damian wasn't on the same side of the court as Batum as the ball was being in about it. So that was my only complaint about my call. Otherwise, I felt, uh, you know, it was good emotion, and and uh, and we certainly let the crowd uh, tell the story for a little while. I would have let even more time go by than, than Antonio did when he jumped in with his comment about Damian being special, but that was fine. And then uh, I, I felt there was enough time to do what ha- what did happen, right? Was able to come in and give a little bit more complete summary of, uh, of what what occurred. So uh, for the most part, I was happy with the call, but I wish I would have done a little better job. And, and probably also, if I had to do it over again, I would have loved to have said uh, Damian for the game and the series. I would have loved to have been able to say that too. So those are probably my only two things that that if I'm being uh, you know critical of myself, that I wish I would have added to the. Uh, uh, to the description and the follow-up description. But overall, uh, obviously, the emotion of the moment, as unexpected as it was, uh, certainly was, uh, you know, made, made, for it to, made for it to be that much, uh, that much more special than, than your typical game-winning shot. I want to ask you a little bit about, you know, the, the play itself in, in a moment. But first, kind of leading up to the play, what are your, as the play-by-play man, what are your thoughts and what's running through your mind as you prepare yourself for game six? Because as you mentioned, um, it, it's not any other game. You want to win game six to win the game, win the series and not have to go back to Houston for game seven. I'm sure it's it's easier said than done to try to treat this like any other game, but how do you prepare yourself? Do you do anything different or unique b- before you get ready for this game in game six? You know, the great thing about a playoff series when it, when it is a series as opposed to one game is that there are adjustments made from game to game and usually the losing team is the one that, that uh, makes those adjustments. And so since the Blazers had lost game five, um, you know, you wondered, was it just a case of Houston was the more desperate team? They knew that uh, their season was on the line and uh, that they were going to have to find a way to survive that game just to keep the series alive. Um, you knew the Blazers were coming home. But again, nobody on that Blazers team, uh, with the exception, I think, of Mo Williams, had been in a position to have won a playoff series. So 
they didn't really know what that experience was like. So you're worried that, um, you know, would they possibly, even though the game was at home, uh, would some of the pressure of the playoffs come back in a way that maybe uh, they couldn't uh, fall back on some previous experience? And so uh, you thought that that could be a problem. And, and again, the way that the game went, it was a great back and forth. I mean, the Rockets obviously still desperate for their lives. The Blazers uh, in some form of desperation, even though they had a game to play with, so to speak, uh, in the series. You know, again, they, they definitely wanted no part of the game seven back in back in Houston. Uh, the crowd was even a little apprehensive at times. I mean, obviously, they, they were very excitable. It's a great home court atmosphere uh, at, uh, at Moda Center. But um, but I think they were a little nervous, too, because they knew what was at stake. They're a very knowledgeable basketball fan. So uh, they knew as the game was going on and Houston was hanging around that, you know, this could be, a, you know, a, 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 an experience where maybe the night's not going to be so memorable, especially with some playoff disappointments that were fresh in everybody's mind over the last few years. So I think from that standpoint, you kind of try to bring a perspective about where the history of uh, the Blazers franchise was at that point in terms of their lack of playoff success in recent memory, and also trying to say for that particular series, uh, here's the Blazers' probably best chance to win it by taking a game six and not having to, even though they won twice in Houston, uh, those were early games in the series, and you really uh, would have given the Rockets a great chance to win that series if it had gone back to a game seven in their building. So all those things were kind of surrounding the game. They were subplots to, to what was going on, uh, but it really was a great back-and-forth game, and, and the Rockets really had nothing to be ashamed of uh, to lose the game in the manner that they did. They, they played very well and uh, and probably uh, should have been the team to talk about stealing one in the, in the final, you know, moments of the contest. And unfortunately, uh, the, guy, the team that had the ball last and the, uh, the guy that had the ball in his hands last, uh, Damian, ended up being uh, the big hero of the night, overshadowing what Chandler Parsons had done uh, moments before. And Parsons actually maybe uh, ended up being a little bit of a goat in that he, he ended up being uh, trailing Damian a little bit to, uh, too much to give him just enough time to get that shot away to, to, to be able to get the game winning hoop. Pacing is obviously important for broadcasters in the sense that you don't want to speak too fast or too slowly, but in the broader sense, it's also important because you don't want to overexert yourself too early in a call or in a game. For example, when Nicola Batum tied the game or when Chandler Parsons took the lead on that uh, tough layup after the, the ball was bouncing around for a while, how do you as a broadcaster make sure to give those moments the credence and the gravity they deserve, uh, but also make sure you maybe have another gear reserved for a potential game winner as, as Damian Lillard did hit? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, I've heard uh, some, some great calls of, uh, of big shots and sometimes, uh, you know, I'll, I'll hear the shot and then maybe there's some crowd noise, but I don't know what's happened. You know, has there been a timeout? I mean, I, I mean, I'm not hearing any continuing play. So I'm assuming that there's a stoppage in play. Something has happened, uh, but I don't necessarily know that. And then all of a sudden I might hear the broadcaster throw to a commercial break. And I said, oh, I guess they went to a timeout. Um, so I'm always concerned about following the play to its conclusion. And to me, that means that you can get excited about what happens, but, uh, but make sure that you're also saying so that the, uh, the listener doesn't think that uh, uh, maybe the ball is being inbounded right away by the other team after a basket by the team that you're getting excited about. Make sure that you're saying after a, after a hoop is scored, especially late in the game, in a close game, time out, you know, the other team, how much time is left in the, you know, in the game at that point because – and then obviously you're giving the score at that point too. So, you know, I think, I, I think because there are other things that I always feel are critical to get in as quickly as possible – um, I try to make sure that even though 
I'm excited about something that may happen. That's, that's great. Now, if it's the end of the game, that's one thing. If it's at the buzzer, that's one thing. Then you can have maybe a little time to, uh, to let things play out. Uh, you got to figure the listeners going crazy if he's a fan of your team. So letting the, uh, the, the crowd, especially for a home crowd, tell the story for a few seconds, I think that's always okay. But if it's during the, uh, during the pace of the game and it's while the game is still going on, I still think there's things you need to get to as quickly as possible. So I try to make sure that uh, I don't uh, belabor the call of, uh, of, a, of a basket, however exciting it might be, uh, to make sure I can get in the next important elements. Is there a timeout? How much time is left in the game? Uh, and I and I try to set those things in an out of bounds situation too late in the game. Uh, I try to set. I try to uh, mention how many timeouts a team might have. Um, can the inbounds passer potentially move uh, if he's being defended? Obviously, in a in a in a after a basket situation, if you're inbounding along the baseline, you can move to inbound the basketball if a defender is uh, is, is pressuring you. But you can't move it's, if it's a stationary situation like Batum was in in this particular case to try to inbound the ball. So I try to mention those things. But I always try to keep track of timeouts, especially because I never want to be the, the person, uh, because I've done it a few times myself, listening to a game and asking the announcer, you know, please tell me how many timeouts does, does each team have so I know uh, that I can anticipate if the person is having any trouble inbounding the ball, does he have the ability to still call timeout? To, uh, to avoid the five-second count, for instance. So it's a lot of things I try to keep in mind. But again, the more, I, the more that I can do things to uh, answer questions for the listener before maybe they even have them, I think, uh, I think that's, that's, that's really my goal in those situations. And so that's why I try to uh, realize that as excited as I might be about a great call, uh, there are other things that need to be mentioned very quickly after that. So I can't get so excited that I forget about those. You mentioned uh, just a little bit ago, very briefly, about how you wanted to mention that Lillard came from one side of the floor to the other to get the inbounds pass. But with so such little time on the clock, nine-tenths of a second left, how do you determine what information is worth saying and what isn't? Because you don't want to fall behind the action and, and, and miss the potential game-winning shot. So as the play-by-play broadcaster in a moment like that, how are you deciding what information is worth mentioning in that moment before you eventually circle back? Yeah, I think uh, I think I probably would have had a hard time mentioning it in the in the uh, exact flow of as it was happening, um, because uh, as it was, again, we're kind of concentrating on the fact that Batum's even almost kind of to me, it seemed like he was almost kind of uh, positioning himself to be um, uh, leaning toward Aldridge. Uh, so I think the the pass to Lillard uh, just became a, a more certain one for him to throw. And Damian was calling for it and uh, had made that move. But I think I would have had a hard time probably saying uh, that Lillard swings over from the far side of the court to get, get, you know, I probably would have had a hard time saying it in the exact flow of when it happened. But I think, again, when I had the chance to recap it, I think that would have been uh, the time to do it and would have even put more emphasis on how big a shot it was because, again, he had to make that move all the way uh, across from one side of the court to the other still have some energy and still be able to twist and contort his body while in the air to square up his shoulders to, to be in a position to uh, be, uh, you know, straight up toward the hoop to be able to get that, uh, that shot to go in. And again, Parsons, uh, you know, isn't expecting it. So, so he's, he's racing as fast as he can, but because he got a late start, that's why he couldn't get to the, uh, to the uh, defense and to the potential block of the shot. 
uh, soon enough. But so I think it would have been nice to mention that. And again, I did, I recall I did as we got into the post game show and we started recapping the shot more and more. Uh, but uh, I think, I think that time at the end of, at the end of the highlight that you played when I had a chance to kind of uh, go back and recap the significance of the shot and, and what it meant to winning a playoff series for the first time in 14 years, that would have been the time to, to say it. So I think I did a, I did a good job in, uh, in, in the description of the actual shot. I don't think I would have had time to mention much more than I did with 0.9 remaining and how Damien really had to catch and shoot almost in, in one motion. Uh, so probably in that case, I called that part of it the best way that it probably could have been done to stay on top of the play. I just wish it, that maybe in the follow-up recap that I'd been able to add that one that extra element to the description. One of my favorite parts of basketball, especially while listening on the radio, is the tension of a three-pointer in the air. There's some of that with this call, and you even kind of extend the pronunciation, the last syllable of game a bit to, to add to some of that drama as the ball is hanging in the air. What do you remember thinking or feeling as, as you see the ball floating through the air towards the rim? Uh, if anything, because I know sometimes in moments like that, you kind of black out. But what do you remember from, from that moment with the tension of the ball in the air? You know, a few years ago, the, uh, the NBA uh, decided that they would, in most arenas and, and, and the Rose Garden, then becoming Moda Center, uh, the Blazers Home Arena did it from, from day one that they could they decided to move the radio announcers off of courtside uh, to a location higher up in the building so that they could sell those seats to, uh, to, to ticket holders, uh, figuring out that they could get a pretty good premium price for those. So we have always been about three quarters of the way up the, uh, the lower level of the arena at home to call the game. Now, we were on the side of the court where we were looking across at the uh, at the benches, so across at the shot as Damian hit it, we were actually uh, looking down at him from the side that he started to play at. So from that standpoint, uh, you know you're you're looking at um, you know you're looking at the you know the the angle you're looking at a play develop. You can kind of see it develop in the case in, in this case because again you're a little higher up, uh, but you don't necessarily see the uh, the flight of the ball that great. And you realize that in that situation, uh, you know, you see a guy take, a, take, take an inbounds pass. He's getting, again, trying to twist uh, and contort his way for a three-pointer, which is not an easy shot, you know, under, under normal circumstances. But in this case, you know, he's really having to do everything he can to position himself in the best way possible to, to, to get the shot uh, as, as straight on line as possible while having a defender chase, try to chase him down. So you can't necessarily tell as the ball is released, but you have that that hopeful um, that hopeful air in your in your voice probably of of a, a positive result, and I think I think you kind of hear that, uh, and then you hear the slight uh, cracking of the voice as you hear it go in because then the uh, excitement of the of the shot going in, while while also combined with the surprise of it going in too and also realizing the magnitude of, of it going in. So all those things were kind of mixed, mixed into it. So it's, um, you know, I, I think the, 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 the crack was very natural and, and was not planned, certainly. Uh, but, uh, and then the excitement was definitely not, not planned because uh, you don't know if the shot's going in. But again, I think, I think uh, what added to that was we were coming from the disappointment of Chandler Parsons getting his shot with 0.9 seconds left 
leading to the laser timeout where Houston is celebrating and for all the world believes it's going back home for game seven. And we're starting to believe that too and starting to think about, boy, oh boy, how are we going to, how are we going to really find a way to turn this into a positive? And are the Blazers going to lose another playoff series and lose it maybe in as frustrating a way as possible by, by giving up a three games to one lead in the series, if they end up losing a game seven in Houston, all those things are going through your head. And you're thinking that this is maybe what the reality is about to become. So because of that, you're lifted from the doldrums of what you think maybe you're headed for based on Parson shot to the exhilaration of Damien rescuing everybody from that fate by, by hitting the shot and, uh, and giving the Blazers not only the win, but also the, the victory in the series. So after the shot falls, after your, your voice cracks, you take a bit of a step back and you mentioned maybe you wish you, uh, there was a little bit more of just the crowd, uh, you know, going over the broadcast, but as a play-by-play broadcaster, obviously, who's been around the NBA for a long time, what's the importance of letting the uh, the audience and the crowd fill moments like that? And and uh, in a moment like that, when you're not talking, what's that experience like hearing hearing the crowd just ring in your ears? I grew up in Los Angeles, and uh, it was at a time when uh, there were some uh, fabulous announcers that were the local announcers for the teams. And it was also at a time when not as many games were on television. So I had the, uh, the pleasure of being able to hear Chicker and do the Lakers, uh, Bob Miller, Hall of Fame broadcaster, do the LA Kings. Dick Ember was a local guy at the time doing the Rams and the, and the Angels, and Ben Scully, of course, doing the Dodgers. Ben Scully, I remember telling the story about when he called Hank Aaron's 715th home run, that uh, it was on a local Dodgers telecast. Uh, but when, he, when the home run was hit, Vince said that he, he wanted to make sure that he let the crowd in Atlanta and, and of course, the game's on TV, so the, the, the pictures tell the story, that he wanted to make sure that he wouldn't be tempted to say something sooner than he wanted to. So he got up and actually walked to the back of the broadcast booth just to make sure that he would be in no position to say something sooner than he wanted to. And then once he felt enough time had passed, he came back to, uh, to his headset and then uh, kind of recapped everything. So I don't think that I necessarily did that. Now, when Damian hit his second shot, the more recent one against Oklahoma City, Michael Holton was uh, my color analyst. Holton also um, does um, the uh, Blazers TV studio work uh, pre and post game. So with about two minutes to go in the first half, two minutes to go in the game, uh, for home games, he would leave the broadcast location for radio and go get set up for his TV hit. And so he was not with me at the time that Damien did a shot. So it was much easier then for me to dictate how much time was going to be left. And I think somebody uh, timed it at a minute and six seconds. And I, I didn't, I didn't necessarily uh, have, a, have a stopwatch on it myself, but I just had a feel for what was right. Uh, and then again, one thing I also heard Vince Scully say once is that one of the reasons why he did allow the crowd to tell the story so often is he said, I figure the guy at home listening is going crazy anyway, so he's probably not going to hear much of what I'm saying as it is. So I'll wait till everything simmers down a little bit and uh, and let the emotion of everything kind of kind of uh, tell the story. So for Damien's second game-winning shot and series-winning shot, um, I think I was able to give even more time there. Now again, as I say, I, I would have given more time in the first one. It was Antonio who, who jumped in, and you could tell I even waited a little bit after that, before I said 
my first words. Uh, but, um, you know, it's just a feel for how long you think is, is right. Again, if it was a road game and uh, there wasn't really any crowd to tell a story, probably maybe you jumped in a little bit sooner. But when the crowd is going so crazy as it was, and in that case, Damien picks up the PA microphone and, you know, yells Rip City. You've got uh, the Blazers playing the sound effect of Bill Shanley's Rip City, which they would play very often after exciting moments. Uh, so, you know, that's coming across the PA. So the, the fan can hear everything like that. Uh, when, when he's listening. So from that standpoint, I don't think that uh, he's missing anything. And so uh, I figure that I got enough time whenever it's right to come back and kind of uh, catch everybody up on everything. But at that moment, it's probably best to just let, uh, let things, let things lie. And so that's, that's, that's just a feel for things. But, um, but I think uh, in, in those exciting situations, I think it's never wrong to let, uh, especially on radio uh, to let the, um, you know, to, and even on TV, I think sometimes, you know, there's enough, you know, camera shots that could, that could tell a story. So you could probably do the same thing on TV. But I think on radio, you know, the crowd noise can never be uh, um, underemphasized that 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 very often tells a story more so than any words you could give. First thing you said after uh, Damien's shot fell was uh, you got to pinch me. Um, and then after the uh, the thunder shot back in 20, 2019, uh, you said, I think uh, your eyes don't deceive, so you have to believe. I wanted to ask you about those two lines. Where did they come from? Is that just natural things that pop in your head in moments like that? Or those things you've said maybe on broadcast past that you'd like to go back to? Where do those kind of sayings come from? Obviously, they, they, they get across similar messages, but they're very different. Uh, where did those come from? Well, I think the, the uh, um, you've got to pinch me. I think I probably have heard that saying from somebody that uh, – you know, I said, you know, I'm, I'm dreaming about something and I just want to make sure that it's real. So that was probably at that moment again, uh, because it was unexpected. Uh, you know, that probably was how I truly was feeling. Um, I had used the uh, my eyes don't deceive. So I have to believe I think the first time when Brandon Roy had his big fourth quarter in the uh, in the comeback, winning the playoffs against Dallas in 2011, I believe it was. Yeah, the year the Mavericks won the championship, as it turns out. Uh, so that had been used before. There were a few, you know, there's a few sayings that I, that I have that, uh, you know, that, that seem to come to mind depending on the situation. Um, and uh, so, um, so I think that those, those, for whatever reason, it just, it just felt right to say it at the time. I think I have them in my mind. And usually I, I, my hope is that um, I can, I can think of the right moment to insert them uh, when, uh, you know, when the moment seems right. So, so I think in those in those cases, uh, both both times it seemed to be the right thing, right thing to say, and both both really emphasize the same thing that, uh, that Damien had done something special, and uh, it wasn't necessarily expected, but um, you know, but based on his uh, um, ability to be a clutch player, uh, it's something now that's become a little bit. I mean, when you consider the number of times that a player has hit a game and series winning shot in NBA history. Damian Lillard is the only person to do it twice. So, so, so I guess now uh, we can, we can say if it happens again, it's not as if uh, he hasn't shown us that uh, this is kind of uh, what he just tends to do, but, but when it happened the first time, it, it was the first time. And what happened the second time um, it was, it was just, I think the second time against Oklahoma city was so dramatic because it happened from so far out uh, against the great defender. 
And it happened so far out, you just start thinking, is he gonna is he gonna shoot the ball here? Is he is he gonna dribble the ball? He's gotta get it get it closer than this, doesn't he? And so so the fact that uh he took the shot from where he did, I think that's what made that that shot so dramatic. So so both shots were uh were series and game winners, uh, but they were kind of maybe dramatic for for different reasons. You mentioned that Lillard's three won the Blazers a playoff series for the first time in 14 years. Obviously, it's very important to mention that. I think Mike Tirico said it on the, the ESPN telecast as well. How does the mention of, of Portland's lack of recent playoff success impact and affect this call? And what does the mention of that do to, for the audience, in your opinion? What's the importance of, of mentioning that statistic? I think, again, it brings in a perspective, uh, just added significance to, you know, I mean, it's, it's, pretty, uh, it's pretty significant in, in, in and of itself that it wins a game. Then it's even more significant that it wins a series. Then when you put into perspective that the Blazers had won a series of 14 years, that makes it even uh, more significant. So I think for all those reasons, and again, you know, anytime you can kind of, uh, you know, you start a game out and either on your pregame show or early in the game, you lay out some storylines that uh, are kind of backdrops to that particular game or side, side stories. And anytime you can kind of bring those back in, if they come into play, um, you know, at some point later in the game, uh, then I think it, then I think it kind of, uh, reinforces for the listener that, Hey, we told you these things were a part of, you know, a part of this broadcast, a part of this game tonight. And now they have been fulfilled in this particular way, or now, you know, we told you this was the situation. Now, uh, that situation has been, uh, corrected by what happened tonight. So, uh, the Blazers lack of playoff success, which was a, a story really the entire series, uh, and, and really was the entire uh, looking into what was going to happen in the postseason. We knew that was now, again, a lot of the Blazer players on that team had not experienced the 14 years of, of, of lack of success. But the, certainly the fans knew about it. Uh, anybody uh, uh, like myself that was connected with the team for any length of time knew about it. So the players were kind of carrying that burden to some extent. And so uh, the fans were certainly aware of it. And uh, any long term, long time fans were ready to enjoy a playoff series win. And so, uh, so I think that, so again, I, in the end time, you can combine the elements of relief and excitement. I think you get uh, extra, you know, extra emotion as was certainly attached to, to that shot. Uh, one last question for you, Brian, you mentioned earlier, just briefly, uh, Bill Shonley and rip city. Of course, Bill Shonley was the creator of the term rip city. Um, and you took over for him when, when you began uh, working for the Blazers in, in 1998. Really, every time someone says Rip City, it's, it's kind of an homage to, to Bill Shonley. Um, for you personally, back in 1998, what was it like trying to fill those shoes? They're obviously giant shoes. And what's it like knowing that like he's remembered for a number of calls that, that you're remembered by Portland fans for calls such as this one as well? Yeah, you know, when, when I was uh, looking at uh, what NBA play-by-play openings might be available um, heading into that summer of 1998. Um, I, I knew that the Portland situation was one of them, but I was reading online uh, some of the articles about the situation in the Oregonian, and I was seeing how, uh, you know, Bill had, had let everybody know that the idea of him leaving the job was not his. And so from that standpoint, I think, um, you know, I started seeing that the uh, gentleman with the team that was kind of the out front person, he, he wasn't the only one making the decision, but he was the one kind of being the public figure talking about the decision 
to uh, to remove Bill from from the from the head play by play job. He's getting death threats. Uh, sponsors are are threatening to cancel their their sponsorships. Season ticket holders are threatening to cancel their season tickets. Everybody's in an uproar that that Bill is being removed against his will. And so I remember thinking to myself as I'm reading all this, man, whoever gets this job is going to be walking into a hornet's nest. And I, I was, I was going to put my, uh, my, my name in for the job, but I really felt they were going to have to get a, a big name personality, somebody that uh, was a, a famous broadcaster from another team uh, that they could say, look, we know you're disappointed that Bill's not here anymore, but look who we got. And as confident as I try to be in myself, I, I really sometimes couldn't picture that I would be the look who we got. So I thought my best opportunity would be maybe to wait for that big name announcer to leave his present team, take the Blazer job, and I would try to get his job that he would leave behind. Also at the time, the Miami Heat had an opening, and the gentleman who had hired me in Sacramento, my previous, well, where I was at the time, actually, um, was now in Miami. And so I thought really that was my best uh, opportunity to get a job that particular summer. And so I was putting most of my effort into the Miami heat situation. I had, uh, I had tried to get the, you know, I put my tape in and my resume for the blazer job. I had talked initially to the guy, Harry Hutt, who was going to be making the decision, or at least one of the main people making the decision, the director of mer uh, marketing and broadcasting. Um, but I talked to him early in the process. Then I, try to follow up uh, on a monthly basis during the season, never heard from back from him once. So I really thought, gosh, I, I, you know, I don't really have any chance at this position, but I, I did have a friend who knew of a sports writer that was being told he was going to get the scoop on who was going to be hired uh, to replace Sean's. And so he said, you know, maybe you should talk to him. If you get some, uh, you know, some any news, you can share it with him. If he hears some news, he can share it with you. And I said, okay, great. So I'm talking to this writer every now and then. And he said, yeah, I'm hearing your name. It's in the mix, but it would be in the mix with all these other big name announcers. And I think what was happening is when they approached the big name announcers, they knew what was going on too. And I think most of them said, Hey, uh, you know, this is a, this is a little tricky trying to replace Sean Lee. Uh, we'll let somebody else come in. And when maybe he doesn't work out, we'll replace him. It'll be easier to do that than try to replace a legend like Sean Lee. So, I think they have looked at some of those big name guys, but they didn't really find much interest uh, from them. So uh, for whatever reason, I don't know what choice I was, but I was actually at the time doing the play by play for the WNBA team in Sacramento. And so we were on a road trip, a week long road trip, first game of the trip. I'm in, um, uh, I'm in, um, in Michigan, getting ready, Dearborn, Michigan, getting ready for a game the next day. Um, at the Palace against the Detroit Sparks, no, the LA Sparks, Detroit, uh, I forget what the Detroit team name was, but uh, anyway, they, uh, they're they not even a team anymore. But so I get ready for the game. And I, 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 at the time, cell phones weren't very prevalent. So I, I called my answering machine back in Sacramento and lo and behold, Harry Hutt has left a message. They said, things are heating up with the trailblazer job. Need to talk with you as soon as possible. So I thought, well, this is great. You know, uh, he'll, he'll be asking me to come in for an interview. But then I thought, but I won't be able to come in for an interview for another week. And he probably wants me to come in sooner than that. Uh, uh, but I got to finish out this road trip. Oh, this is terrible. Uh, I probably won't get the job now. So a lot of thoughts are going through my head. I said, well, I'll just talk to him, see what he says. So I get him on the phone. Uh, we exchange some pleasantries. And then he says, so the Blazers play-by-play -play job. And I said, yes, sir. Yes, sir. And he said, uh, 
Um, he said, are you interested? And I said, I said, yes, very much so, very much so. And he goes, well, good, good, good. He said, uh, well, we'd like to offer it to you. Who do we talk to, you or your agent? And I was so incredulous and so unprepared to talk about uh, a situation that you uh, didn't expect to happen that I probably said the worst thing possible that you could say at that point in time. I said, you don't even want to meet me first? And uh, he said, no, times like this, since things take over and there's too many people saying too many nice things about you. So, no, we're ready to move forward. And I said, well, I, I guess you talked to my agent. And uh, he said, well, you call him and tell him we're going to talk tomorrow and we'll get this thing rolling. And I said, Harry, I know you're taking a chance on somebody that isn't uh, that experienced uh, when it comes to full-time play-by-play, but I'm going to make you proud. And, and he said, I know you will. This is going to be a great thing for all of us. And we'll all grow together. And I said, well, thank you. And so I hung up the phone and, and I said, I think I've just been offered the play-by-play job with the Portland Trailblazers. And I looked around the room and I said, and I have nobody to celebrate with. And so I, I called, I think, every person that I ever, you know, ever knew uh, that night telling them the, the news. And the next morning I woke up and I said, oh, I got to call my agent. It was in New York. And uh, I was too late to call him the night before. So I used my calling card. I put the number in and it wouldn't go through. Tried it again. Wouldn't go through. Called the AT&T operator. And she said, let me check what's going on. She said, she came back and said, oh, there were so many calls made to so many different parts of the country. We thought it was a stolen card. So we cut it off. And I said, no, no, I got this great job. I was just calling all my friends and people that I knew. And they lived in different areas of the country. And, and she said, oh, okay, well, congratulations. We'll turn it back on. So it dawned on me that um, all these people that have written books and uh, conducted seminars on how to interview for the job of your life and how to dress the part and say the right things. And here I got the job of my life and I never even interviewed for it. So there was no, no logic to that uh, in reality. So they brought me to town um, after, that, after that road trip and they actually had a press conference to introduce me. And I, I was used to being a person to introduce people that were the subject of a press conference. I was not used to being the subject of a press conference, but I soon realized how big a deal it was. Who is this guy going to try to replace Bill Shanley? And so um, I think the first five questions I took were about what makes you think you can do that. And uh, I think, you know, I realized the situation, obviously. I realized the magnitude of it. Again, I grew up listening to some great announcers. And I, and I put myself in the position of Blazer fans. And I said, you know, how disappointed would I be if uh, Chick Hearn had been replaced as the voice of the Lakers while I was listening to him growing up? I would have been upset, too. And I certainly would have been wondering, you know, who could possibly come in and, and you know, walk into these shoots. So I think what I said at the press conference was hopefully in time, people will find out that um, it's never, it's never not okay to love Bill Shanley. Uh, but maybe you can also think Brian Wheeler's okay too. And so I think I kind of just took that approach. And then uh, the tough thing about that first year was it was the first lockout season. So here I am anxious to get started with my new job. And the first game isn't played until February. So, but I think that early part of the time I was there, we did a lot of things where we had uh, luncheons with season ticket holders or events. You know, we couldn't do anything with uh, the players or coaches. Uh, well, we could do something with the coaches, but not with the players. Uh, so it was difficult. But I think I got to know some of the fans. And, and one lady in particular kind of uh, probably symbolized a lot of the feelings of some of the fans at that time. She came up to me and said, so you're the new guy, huh? And I said, uh, yes, yes. And she said, huh. She said, well, I'm going to give you two games. And I said, oh, okay. I said, uh, so you mean if I'm not hitting my stride by that third game, you might not listen anymore. She goes, that's right. And so she came up to me later in the season after 
we had had the almost the entire regular season and saw me again and said, you know what? We didn't want to like you too much. And I said, I said, I understand. She goes, but you're okay. I said, ma'am, coming from you, that's probably the best compliment that I could possibly receive. So I think some people grudgingly came along and said, all right, you know, we're disappointed. Sean's isn't here, but this guy, at least, you know, he'll pass or whatever. So, so I think it worked out. I mean, but it, uh, and I don't think there was a lot of pressure along the way. I, I just, I guess in my own mind, I felt like, you know, I'm a likable guy. I, I don't think I'll offend anybody. And fortunately the team was good, which always helps. I mean, if the team had been bad that year, people would have said, Hey, this stuff never happened when Shawnee was around, you know, this, this guy's bad luck or something. But since the team was pretty good and all of a sudden I'm calling exciting plays, you know, Hey, this guy sounds okay. That probably helped too. So um, it, it, it was not really a, as difficult a transition as I thought it would be, but, uh, but certainly those were some heavy uh, shoes to try to walk into because uh, he had been the only real true voice of the team for the first 28 years of its existence. So uh, that was not an easy thing to do, but, but I think it worked out as well as I could have hoped. Wow. Awesome story. Thanks so much for sharing it with me. Uh, that's all I've got for you, Brian. I really appreciate you uh, taking out some of your time. Uh, I've really always enjoyed listening to you and uh, this call is uh, definitely a fun one to listen to. So uh, thanks again. Mark, my pleasure. Anytime. And again, that's Brian Wheeler. Let's listen to his call of Damian Lillard's series-winning three-pointer for the Portland Trailblazers in the 2014 NBA playoffs one final time. The Blazers have one three-pointer in the quarter. That was by Batum. But Nick's going to inbound. I don't know if there's enough time for him to get it back. This time they put Jones on Batum, and Howard is defending Aldridge. So in case the Blazers go for a two to their best player, Howard is defending him. Batum throws to Lillard. A three for the game. You've got to pinch me. I must be dreaming. I'll pinch you. <laughs> in an absolutely incredible first round playoff series that ends in the most dramatic way possible. Damian Lillard takes an inbounds pass from Nikola Batum and nails a three-pointer. There was absolutely no doubt. Chandler Parsons ran at him late, but far too late. And Lillard connects as the horn sounds and the Blazers walk off the court winners 99-98. And for the first time in 14 years, the Blazers have won a playoff series and they couldn't have done it in a more thrilling fashion. New episodes of Golden Tones drop each Tuesday. Do you have a call or highlight you think I should feature in a future episode? Let me know on Twitter at Golden Tones Pod. You can also visit anchor.fm backslash Golden Tones.